Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based and humanistic system of health. The views I express on the podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, the topic we are going to focus on today is on the health of our primary care system. We'll be exploring some of the fundamental problems plaguing primary care and also some of the solutions that our guests have been working on and are intimately aware of. And we're going to hear about a primary care dashboard that has been constructed in the state of Massachusetts. And I'm hoping to hear more about how it's doing and if it's spreading to other states as well. Before I formally introduce our expert guest today, I'm going to make a request of you. If you find value in the podcast, please share it with your colleagues and also rate it online. This actually helps others find the podcast. I also really love hearing your perspectives. The purpose here is to create more dialogue and to catalyze action around the transformation of American healthcare. So many of you have been actively sharing the podcast through LinkedIn and Twitter and emailing it. And, and to those of you who are doing that and to those of you who are going to begin, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking a moment to spread the podcast, but more importantly than that, that to spread the word on, on creating new healthcare. Now, I have to tell you, our guests are, are super accomplished today. I'm so excited to be speaking to these experts. I'm going to keep their introductions brief, but there will be a more detailed version in the show notes that are posted with the podcast. Now, the first guest, Barbara Rapson, whom I've had the pleasure and privilege of knowing for many, many years, has led the Massachusetts Health Quality Partners, the MHQP, since 1998. Under her leadership, MHQP has become a national leader in the measurement and public reporting of healthcare information with a particular focus on measuring and improving patients' experience of care. Barbara serves on numerous state committees and boards, too many to begin to list. She received her master's degree in public health from the Yale University and her undergrad degree from Brandeis University. Our other expert guest is Dr. Catherine Gergen Barnett. She is a vice chair of primary care innovation and transformation in the Department of Family Medicine at Boston Medical Center. She's a clinical associate professor at Boston University School of Medicine, an associate at Harvard's Center for Primary Care, and a health innovators fellow at the prestigious Aspen Institute. Prior to joining Boston Medical Center in 2009, Dr. Gergen Barnett attended Yale University School of Medicine and worked at the National Institutes of Health. She is a practicing physician, an active researcher, and is involved in local and state health policy. Barbara and Catherine, what an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you both? Great. Very well. Thank you for having us. I'm so pleased to be here with you and, and with Barbara. Yeah, it's a real pleasure, Zev, so thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm going to really jump into a moment into this dashboard, which I find so fascinating and really want to spend the, the, the beginning part talking about, because I think it's something that very, very few people are aware of and aware of the need of. But before we jump in, primary care. It's been talked about a lot, uh, but maybe I'll, I'll direct this, Catherine, to start off with you. Why is primary care so important from a public health as well as a personal health perspective? Yeah, thank you so much for the questions, Ev. I, um, you know, I've had the real privilege and honor of serving as a primary care physician 
for about 17 years, uh, going on 18 at Boston Medical Center, which is the largest safety net hospital. So can really speak from the kind of academic policy perspective and also a very personal perspective of what it means to have a relationship uh, with your primary care physician and what that can do with health and health outcomes. But to kind of um, tunnel out a bit, the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine put out a really seminal report in 2021 where they looked at all of the data and they confirmed what many of us have known for a long time, which is that primary care is the only medical specialty which serves to reduce medical costs and improve health outcomes of communities and also works to improve health equity. So if you're looking at something that really, you know, hits across all domains in terms of where we need to go as a country to improve the health of our community and lower total cost of care, we see that primary care is the solution. Catherine, obviously you're a physician. If you were going to consider primary care a patient, how is the patient doing? Such a great question. Um, I I, uh, actually wrote an op-ed in the Globe a a few months ago with um, the chair of family medicine at Tufts and where we really talked about primary care being on life support. So we are coming out of, as we all know, a crisis in healthcare. And, you know, that has only made the patient of primary care more ill. I think going into the pandemic, we knew that um, primary care was underinvested. We had people leaving primary care. We had not enough people going into primary care. And now, three years later, we see a system where there's even greater underinvestment in primary care nationally, more and more demands on primary care physicians and primary care practices, which I think anyone listening to this, whether you've been to a primary care doctor recently or you are in primary care, you know that we have a mental health crisis. We know that more and more patients are needing to come and be seen and are more ill. And we also know that less people are going into primary care. And so our pipeline is even more leaky. So uh, I would say that, you know, we've got a lot of work to do to kind of nurse primary care back to health. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful statement and definitely going to look up that article that you were referring to. Primary care being on life support. You mentioned underinvestment. I mean, you would think given that, that we would be pouring more money into primary care. What percentage of the total spend does go to primary care in this country in healthcare? Yeah, so so I know that Barbara will um, talk about that and and the really important work that MHQP has done in terms of measuring it in Massachusetts. And um, myself and many colleagues are also very involved in in working on improved investment in primary care in Massachusetts and nationally. But you know, currently we have about across the country only, you know, up to about 5% investment in total cost of of care in terms of the total number of dollars that are going towards medical care period. Um, and if you think about sort of the whole pie, there's a tiny, tiny sliver that goes towards primary care. Um, Massachusetts is is at about seven to eight percent, which I know Barbara will talk about, um, which does better than than some states. But this is about half of what 
many other countries invest. And we know that, again, we have some of the highest care um, dollars that go, go into medical care here in the country and some of the worst outcomes. So if we think about how we invest in primary care and if we flip that similar to other countries, then not only double investment in primary care, but also, um, I know we'll talk about this as well, but invest more heavily in what we call social determinants of health. So thinking about you know things like trans transportation, housing, food, all of those things, which also improve care, then we'd have a very, very different system in terms of our health outcomes. Barbara, before we dive into this MHQP dashboard of primary care, how did this come about? Like, what what was the impetus? I mean, Dr. Gergen Barnett has definitely outlined a, a serious case and argument for where we are in primary care and, and the need to, to do something about it, it being on literally life support there. But how did this conversation begin? Yeah, thanks for that question, Zev. So MHQP has been measuring the performance of primary care practices in Massachusetts for close to 20 years. We measure both patient experiences with primary care and clinical quality based on HEDIS measures. And we report back to the practices about their performance. We report publicly. Our data is used for health plan incentive programs. So we've worked really closely with the primary care community since about 2006. And what we found around 2000, actually 2018, we convened a bunch of stakeholders to talk about uh, barriers that patients face from getting the right care at the right time at the right place. And one of the biggest barriers that came up was access to primary care. And so we talked to our, went to our physician council and started talking to our clinicians about improving access to primary care. And they have a very strange reaction. This is a group that usually engages and is problem solving. And they said, I don't think so. They said, we, you don't understand. We are so pressed that we cannot do one more thing. And it was like, whoa, you know, if primary care is this unstable. Everybody needs to be talking about that. And so we started in 2019 convening folks to talk about, well, what would we want the future of primary care to look like and, and what are the problems and, and potential solutions? And then uh, our governor at the time, Charlie Baker, his administration came out with legislation saying we should invest 30% more in primary care and behavioral health, which was tremendous. By the way, the bill hasn't passed yet, but it's, <laughs> it's still filed. And so we said, look, we need to really understand how to invest these monies. And then COVID hit. And it was devastating, as everyone knows, for the entire healthcare system and for patients. And but particularly, you know, primary care, the Green Center, Becca Etz, a researcher, did a lot of surveys during the early days of COVID uh, of primary care practices and found just how devastating it was and how many practices were planning to close. And so it was, you know, clearly a huge impact. And then, you know, as, as the pandemic wore on, it, it occurred to me that there's no way to tell how devastating the pandemic was on primary care, which was already unstable. And it's like, there's nowhere to go for this information. So we thought, okay, we're a measurement organization. We need to pivot from measuring the performance of primary care to measuring the health of primary care. So once we did that, we started talking to all kinds of stakeholders to ask them, if you were to measure the health of primary care, what would that look like? And we came up with literally hundreds of potential metrics. And then we started drilling down. We have an advisory committee. 
And then we decided that um, we settled on a number of domains. And one of those domains was investment or financing. And at that point, we went to the state's data organization. It's called the Center for Health Information and Analysis, because we knew that when the governor had originally uh, filed legislation, they said, oh, we have the all-payer claims database. You know, We're in charge of data. We need to figure out what is the primary care spend? If we're going to invest 30% more, 30% based on what? And so this data agency started looking into primary care spend. MHQP came out with uh, different domains of care that we felt were important to track besides finance or investment, which were the performance of primary care, looking at access and care, looking at importantly at access for primary care, and then finally equity. So we partnered with uh, this Center for Health Information Analysis, or CHIA, as we affectionately know it. And we said, okay, let's build a dashboard so that people can see what's going on with primary care, monitor any kind of policy changes to see the impact. You know, when you, if you do invest more, you know, is it having the impact we want? And so uh, in January of this year, we launched the first in the nation dashboard to measure the health of primary care focused on Massachusetts. And since that time, I should also say the the National Academy report that uh, Catherine mentioned when it came out, mm -hmm. it had a chapter on accountability. And so it listed a number of metrics that, that we should track as a nation to look at uh, primary care. And so I've been part of a advisory group that the Millbank Fund put together and they put together a national dashboard on primary care in February. So, so this is, you know, we're, we're building momentum, which is really important. Yeah, so first of all, I did have a chance to go online to the mhqp.org website and I looked at the dashboard that you just posted. I'll come back to it in a moment, but I have to say I was just absolutely startled at some of the metrics and what they're demonstrating. And I'd love to ask you both about that, but so glad to hear, and that was going to be one of my questions. Number one, is this going to be an annual report or, or more frequent than that? Question number one. And question number two, are you working closely with the Millbank? Is their dashboard similar to yours? And, and are they doing it in all states or at the national level? Yeah, yeah, great question. So we this will be an annual dashboard. In fact, we're going to jumpstart the second version of this. Uh, it's going to be we're anticipating this fall sometime. So this year we're going to do uh, the second version of this and we will include the metrics that we have. All the metrics in this are publicly reported and they're collected annually or every other year. Um, we're also going to be adding some new metrics um, because we feel like, you know, there's some gaps in this picture. It's a pretty good start, but, you know, it does, there's, there's other information we'd like to add to it. So we're working closely with the CHIA team um, to come up with what the next version of this dashboard will, will look like. And in terms of the metrics on this compared to uh, the national dashboard, as I mentioned, for Millbank, they are based the national dashboard on the metrics that were in the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine report on primary care. And so they look at similar metrics. They look at financing as we do. They look at workforce, which is, we look at capacity. They look at access, which is one of two performance uh, metrics we have. They look at training and they look at research. And so um, importantly, the research, and I think Catherine alluded to this, there's so little research money going into primary care research, um, an astounding 
0.2% of the National Institute of Health funding is allocated for primary care, which is, you know, it's just like so minuscule. And it is such an important part of our healthcare system to invest so little in a, of it, it, it is really telling. And one of the things that was really important to me, and as you said, you know, startling when, when with the MHQP dashboard that we built for Massachusetts with, with Chia, is that when you put these different domains together, I mean, you can hear, okay, primary care spend is low in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. less than 8% and declining. And, and then capacity is low. <laughs> and declining, that Massachusetts has a higher proportion of um, primary care physicians leaving leaving the profession than nationally. And over a third of our primary care docs are over age 60 or older, which is also, you know, which is increasing the, the age. Uh, performance metrics, while, you know, we pride ourselves in Massachusetts, performance has been very good, but it is going down. And then equity issues, we know that there's substantial racial and ethnic disparities, uh, particularly around access and utilization for primary care. And then you put all four of those together. And as, you know, this Catherine's comment about, you know, primary care being on life support, you see why, because it's uh, declining in all dimensions. You know, these numbers, again, the word startling comes to mind. I, I'm still stuck on that percentage. Two-tenths of 1% of the NIH funding is going to primary care. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it is it's just so... It's mind-boggling. Believable. Yeah. I mean, it, it shows the priority, right? It's And, and, and the need to, to readjust and rejigger um, and sort of and redistribute the funding that we we put into healthcare in this country. I almost want to kind of jump to this issue of solutions, but I'm going to, I'm just going to hold back for a second because I want, I want both of you to jump in with that in a moment, but just to give folks a sense. And if you, if you do go online and I, I urge you to, to the mhqp.org website and, and look at this dashboard, the primary care in Massachusetts dashboard, I mean, some of these numbers, and again, I imagine it's, some of it is due to the pandemic, but in one year's time from 2000, in 19 to 220, life expectancy for men decreased from 78.5 to 76.7, over one and a half years drop in life expectancy. Women, the same thing, over one and a half years, life expectancy decreased. We saw infant mortality go up. And again, this is startling. In the greatest nation in, in the world, in a state that is such a robust state when it comes to health care, one third of the residents in Massachusetts, one third reported having difficulty obtaining necessary health care in, in the past month or so. And I, again, I, I don't understand these numbers. Can you, Catherine, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I, I completely understand why you said primary care is on life support. It is in the ICU. Yeah. What's your thought about it? Well, I mean, I just to kind of you know, go back to a bit about what Barbara was saying. And just again, kudos to MHQP and the Millbank and um, Chia and all the collaborators who have been going forward and, and working on these dashboards. I think, you know, part of it is how do you bring attention to these matters, right? Mm -hmm. So those of us who have been on the front lines, living through it, have been kind of increasingly, to use your words, startled by the changes that we're seeing, some of which have been so subtle, it sometimes takes a moment to step back and be like, wow, this really is, it's not just our imagination, this really is getting harder. Access really is getting worse. Um, but part of, you know, 
having a dashboard is saying, okay, these are the vital signs of primary care, right? To use again, primary care as a patient. If we can only see how sick a patient is, if we start to check their vital signs, and this is an opportunity to check vital signs. I think we tout ourselves as, as sort of, you know, quote, like one of the greatest nations in the world. But I think when you think about our priorities in healthcare, we've gone pretty far away from some of the basic things that we know are, you know, human rights in terms of, of, of access to healthcare, access to healthy places to live, and, you know, our, our equity measures, as we know, are, are um, far behind uh, some other countries in terms of our outcomes among different races and ethnicities. And so I think we can no longer sit on our laurels thinking about ourselves as this great country delivering great care. I mean, we have you know, some of the best institutions, I feel so lucky to be living in a place like Massachusetts. But how do we kind of step back and reprioritize, as Barbara says, and, and think about redistribution of monies in this hugely expensive healthcare system? And part of it is policy. I mean, you you place policy next to things that matter. And you shape policy for things that matter. And again, very lucky to be in a place where people are in policy and in the state government are, are working with us and saying, you're right, this does matter. Let's let's see how we can shift it. But we can't say that's true of all places. And then, you know, I think it's it's also not just creating the metrics, but is how do you put teeth in the metrics? How does it actually make any difference? Um, it's one thing to measure. It's another thing to say, okay, those outcomes actually matter, um, not just for patients, but they matter in terms of how we're going to be paying providers and and how we're going to be investing in the system differently. So I think the most important thing is is getting the data we're getting right now, but then but then taking the next step and saying, okay, that data actually needs to shift policy and, and shift investment strategies. Yeah. If if I may Zeb, I, I I would add that yeah. in, in the editorial that Catherine and I wrote um for the Globe, we talked about a phrase in the NASM report when they said in the report they they depicted what the United States would look like if people no longer had access to quality primary care. And in this really dismal picture, and you know, this is a quote, minor health problems can spiral into chronic disease, chronic disease management becomes difficult and uncoordinated, visits to the emergency departments increase, preventive care lags, and healthcare spending soars to unsustainable levels. And when you think about the pressures on the healthcare system, and we hear so much about hospitals and you know, and how bad emergency room backups are, well, hello, if primary mm -hmm. care gets any mm -hmm. more unstable, it, it is it's unfathomable how much, you know, worse it's gonna get. And Barbara, when was that published, that editorial? Oh, January 25th of this year. In in the Boston Globe. Yeah, I can send you a link. Yeah, if you do, I will definitely put it in the show notes as well. And and for those of you uh, easily could look online as well. Again, I, I printed out these these dashboards uh, from the MHQP and these numbers. Again, there's a lot of talk about Medicare Advantage and the benefits and some of the challenges. But I had assumed this was an assumption which is now shattered, which is uh, that somehow Medicare Advantage would, would actually be pouring more resources into primary care. And yet I see from your report in, in, in one of the four categories, right, you have finance, performance, capacity, and equity, which I, I really, really love those categories. But it, only 4.6% of spending in Medicare Advantage is on primary care, which is 
no better and potentially worse than even the fee-for-service Medicare. The word startling may actually show up in the title of this podcast because I, I, I'm dumbfounded by these numbers. And yet at the same time, I, I think the hopeful thing, and, and I think this is, Barbara, I'd love you to speak to this, but it does seem like you, you can't fix anything or the problem until you actually measure it. And it seems like that's where you all have started in that measurement phase, which I truly, truly now appreciate and applaud. Yeah, absolutely. And and Zeb, I have to tell you, this 4.6% of primary care spending for Medicare Advantage is the one data point in this whole report that blew my mind the most. Hmm. I, I was, I, I'm with you. I could not. I, it's hard to get your head around. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the whole, you know, when you think about how much money is spent on these Medicare plans. And if you think of a primary care clinician as sort of the navigator, the point, you know, that coordinates that, you know, sort of helps uh, sort of understand what's going on with the whole person and, and sort of it, it's, you know, in, in, in charge. And, and you think that only 4.6% of spending is going to the primary care, you know, for that. And it, it, clinician, it's just, you know, it's mind boggling. And, you know, and I've heard from colleagues that say, well, of course, you know, um, as people get older, they spend more money on everything else. But even so, that you know, the ratio or the you know the percent of spending, I I, I can't explain. I mean, the, it mm-hmm. makes no sense. I'm just bad. Yeah, the piece that I would add to that is, in addition to us sort of really kind of highlighting the finances and how we shift the finances, I think we also need to be looking at how we shift the cultural. Um, appreciation and understanding of primary care, because part of it is when you have a patient that understands the value of primary care, that's actually experienced it firsthand. It doesn't have to be an intellectual understanding about what it means to have a relationship with a primary care person um, to Barbara's point, who can sort of quarterback your care. Um, that is really different. And then you'll lean into that primary care doctor again to be doing all those specialty pieces or not actually, you know, as a family medicine doctor, we can actually do a lot of those things in the office. So how do you ensure that the population, the U.S. population also has enough experience and enough appropriate longitudinal care with a primary care physician to understand that value and have that be the first reflex, the first stop in terms of actually getting good care. Going back to this issue of teeth, again, brilliant report. I just absolutely love this. I'm looking forward to looking at the at the Millbank National Dashboard as well. What part of the plan is in place in terms of assuring that, Catherine, to your comment, that the policymakers are actually seeing this and reviewing. Is this part of what you're working on or is this established? So I, I can say a few things. I know that Catherine will, is involved in an effort, some legislation to better support primary care in Massachusetts. But one thing I think that's really important on a policy side is public support. And I have been so pleased with the coverage that we've received in Massachusetts about this dashboard. The Boston Globe has already run about three stories about uh, primary care and the shortage of primary care clinicians. 
And the reader comments that came in, I mean, after the first story came out, there were 300 reader comments and they all had stories like, well, I had a primary care doctor for a really long time. They retired and I've not been able to find another one or I found another one and then they left or, you know, just, just these stories about that it really resonates with people that, that you know, that primary care that it's fragile and, and it's in trouble. And so when when there's, you know, continual uh, sort of resonance with the public about this, and it, it, it feels like, you know, that will help with the, on the policy side. And in fact, the Globe had so many comments, they ran their own uh, survey of their readers asking them about experiences with, you know, not being able to get into primary care. And so I think that's one really important piece, but of course there's the legislative piece as well. Yeah, and I'll I'll speak to that, Barbara. Um, you know, briefly because you know I'm 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 involved as well as um, many many other people in sort of being directly at the lines of encountering and working closely with policymakers. I will just I will say that the public support and and I agree with you entirely, Barbara, that my experience in doing this work is, you know, I've been asked to speak about it in public radio and public television. And, and so many people are um, kind of coming through and starting to understand how this is impacting them personally and, and kind of um, on a community level. And, and that, you know, obviously shapes uh, lawmakers and people we elect, right, because they want to be responding to constituents. But I think also um, having primary care uh, providers and, and folks who are on the front lines at the table with policymakers is critical. There's not enough of it that happens. There's um, some of us who are working directly with state lawmakers in Massachusetts, working on the initial um, proposal that, as Barbara mentioned, Governor Baker had originally put through in terms of 30% increase and now we're working with Governor Healy's office on actually amping that up a little bit more um, in terms of the spend in primary care and what is what we're capable of here in, in Massachusetts, but also working nationally with a group called Primary Care Collaborative, um, which is a group of leaders across the country working on federal legislation and in the Biden administration on some of this. Um, but again, I think it's it takes all of us to be more aware of what our needs are to be starting to articulate to you know legislators and and local leaders i mean it doesn't you know it doesn't have to be on the state level you could be really working with um, town leaders um, because every voice counts and the more there's an upswelling of support for this and more there's an awareness and the more there is startling realizations which are exactly what we need to wake us up the more that we can be putting some teeth in this yeah, and to that point, I would also say we've been talking to employers about this report, and and they're very concerned too, and and they should be, <laughs> and you know they have some responsibility here, and and um, the benefit design uh, of employers makes a difference, and and I will say that in Massachusetts, several years ago, uh, it was a very heavy managed care state, so you know most patients had an eighty percent, I think, had HMOs, which required a primary care provider and per member per month payments went to that primary care provider. Over time, that that has shifted dramatically. Now, close to half of all 
residents in Massachusetts with, who are commercially insured have a high deductible PPO plan where it's not required to have a primary care clinician. And you know that had an impact, but nobody was tracking it from the perspective of primary care. And so, you know, policy, even if it's not about primary care, it has impact on primary care. And the beauty of this dashboard is that, you know, it will be an early wake up call to say, wait a minute, what's going on? You know, like, how did that happen? You know, and so that, you know, one more thing. And I will say on the national level, the um, purchasers business group on health, which has large employers at the table are really championing primary care. And they're doing a fabulous job, you know, talking about the value and the importance and how it's important to, you know, redistribute funding towards primary care because it is the foundation of our healthcare system and that health care costs will just go up without it. So, so there's lots of different levers that each of us have um, that we need to engage and, and use them. Mm -hmm. In terms of the funding, and Catherine, I'll turn to you for a moment. Part of the issue is not just the access, but it's also the time that primary care providers have to spend with their patients. Most of primary care, my understanding in this country, most of it is fee-for-service. So it's RVU-based, you sort of pay for clicks, pay for visits. And so primary care providers and the organizations that they're employed by are almost forced to increase the volume beyond what primary care physicians can handle. And also that means decrease face-to-face -face time between doctors and patients, which is counter to what primary care is about, which is prevention and, and really looking at the whole person and managing as we've been talking about. If you had a magic wand and if we could say, okay, this is what we need and this is how, where would that money go? How would it go? Would you also look at the payment model and, and, and convert it from fever service to something else? Absolutely. I mean, that, that was a, a, a very nice uh, softball question <laughs> um, in terms of thinking about, you know, the way in which we need to be changing investment. I mean, I think the big thing that is happening right now, not at a, a super speed pace in all states, but we are moving to what we call value-based care where it is um, kind of antithetical to that, you know, just click to to get paid. And the idea is that you get paid um, per member per month, where you're really given a sum of money in a practice to say, okay, you don't necessarily need to bring this patient in for another visit. It's not good for them. It's, you know, certainly the system can't withstand it. Actually, what's going to make them better is making sure in this case is making sure that they have access to low um, sodium foods, you know, for their blood pressure or whatever it may be. So thinking um, more holistically about the care of patients and communities and getting paid to keep a patient well and not just for everything you do to a patient. Um, I think that's a really important transformation that's happening. Um, again, um, in a place like Massachusetts, I think, you know, we have so much work to do, um, but we are sort of um, leading the way in some of the work we're doing in our accountable care organizations um, to do some of that work. And the other thing is, so, you know, in changing investment so that you're actually, um, you know, again, able to do that and give it providers more flexibility. Um, but the other thing is, how do you invest in the team? How do you think about all of the people that need to be in the medical care team to truly take care of a patient. So um, making sure that you have integrated pharmacists, making sure that you have behavioral health 
um, and really good access to behavioral health, making sure that you can do things like home visits, that you have access to exercise prescription, all of those kinds of things, which, you know, we don't, we didn't go into medical school learning about them, but those of us who have been on the front lines for long enough know that these, these, you know, team members are invaluable and we cannot do this without them. Um, and every person needs to play their role. Um, and so really thinking about it as sort of a nexus of health uh, rather than just that one-off that, you know, we've often been taught. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really important point. And as I've been in primary care for a long, long time, decades, and the truth is that the fee-for-service model pins you up against the wall. The only thing you can do to survive is figure out how to fill in your schedule. Make sure that the appointments are there and that people are coming in because that is the way you're getting paid. And all the other work you do is non-paid. And all the management work, all the calls, all the emails, all the behind the scenes work, which is hours and hours each day, is not paid for. And so the only way to survive, to make it financially viable, is to just fill those visits, which again is, gets to a point of being really antithetical to good care. And I think this notion, as you're talking about, going to value-based care where it's per member per month, allows the physician, the practice, the organization to actually focus on the outcomes of care, focus on the person and do what's right and get those outcomes and have that experience rather than having to be pinned against the wall and just fill up the schedules as much as they can. And so it's, it's really the payment model really puts, I think, doctors and their teams and organizations in a position which is really not sustainable and not good care, but there's nothing you do until that payment model shifts over. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I will just, I will just say, you know, anecdotally that we now have population health sessions built into our, our modules for our providers and talking to my colleagues, um, you know, who are doing those population health sessions, they say, I finally can be the kind of provider I want to be. Hmm when they're doing those, those sessions, it's like, you know, we get to actually reach out to people we've been concerned about rather than always having to react to whatever shows up at our doorstep. Yeah. If there's a reason I think that we see as, and I think you both pointed this out, the, the exodus of physicians from primary care when, and not as many coming in as we need, I think it's this, it's you put primary care doctors in a, in they didn't sign up for this and it's not the job that they want to do. I've heard this anecdotally from so many folks who are struggling as primary care physicians and even, even specialists. I, I want to turn to, if it's okay with you, I'd, I'd love to turn to some of the emerging solutions and, and in our correspondence, you both had, had written back some really interesting things that are happening in terms of investing in primary care, also engaging the community and sort of redesigning primary care and some of the use of artificial intelligence to address burnout. And uh, I'll let you, you know, pick whichever one is most exciting and interesting and, and kind of impactful from your perspective. And Catherine, maybe you want to take a shot at this first, but Barbara as well, please jump in. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in first. And I'm actually going to take briefly two, two pieces in part because I think although they sound so different, it's a really important part of the full spectrum of the way we need to be thinking outside of the box and innovating um, within primary care. So the first is to go back to kind of a model that um, has been, is as old as time, right? Which is the building of relationships, the building of trust, 
I'm doing a lot of work with community partners and a lot of community engagement, which I actually think is a really important place that the NIH and other funders are shifting. But, you know, we were just talking about what a low, low percentage of research is going into primary care. And I think shifting some of the money towards community-engaged strategies is a really important way for primary care to go because we know that you know, there has been such a high degree of medical distrust historically present day um, in terms of how do we get people to engage in in medical care, period, let alone primary care, especially in traditionally marginalized communities. So one of the pieces that I've been doing work on is, is creating restorative justice and uh, circles and, and opportunity for people to tell their stories from traditionally marginalized communities so we can learn how we need to be building trust more within the medical system. Um, so that's just like the very relational piece and how do we actually, um, how do we put money towards um, incentivizing again, the right thing um, in medicine, which is to create relationships and, and trust building. And then the flip side of that, and, and you know, I could speak about each Part of this all day, but is the AI right and and um, not for relationship building, um, but thinking about the administrative burden that's happening in primary care right now, and and uh, taking one piece of it, which is the Epic inbox. So you know any but any kind of EHR inbox, we know that for any of us who are on the front lines, it's it's becoming a whole job in and of itself in terms of the number of messages that are coming into that inbox. Um, and so how do you work with um, artificial intelligence wisely to help you discriminate what those inbox messagings um, are and then to get them to the right people? Um, and if sometimes it might not be uh, needing the help of a person, it could be actually something that could be an AI generated response. So um, taking some of the burden off the shoulders of the, the primary care providers and um, using AI um, intelligently and and, um, yeah, and wisely in terms of reducing this burden. Yeah, Catherine, just two comments, so helpful. The first is this notion of t touching base with the community, talking to folks. It seems sort of namby-pamby and, and you get that feeling from doctors and from the system and healthcare, but in every other industry, it's sort of core, right? You wouldn't create a product, you wouldn't market a product, you wouldn't sell a product without doing customer discovery. Huge, huge departments of marketing, not to sell, but actually to understand who your customers are, what yeah. their needs are, how those needs are changing. And we still have so little of that in healthcare and probably even less in primary care. So kudos to you for, for essentially doing the marketing research that is so, so critical. And, and those needs, as you know, change. And by the way, those needs are different if you're a woman versus a man, if you're 25 versus 85, if you cultural differences. And so again, every other industry, they've understood this for decades. They use science and technology and art to understand their customers in the different segments. And so again, it's just astounding to me that we're still decades behind everyone else in this domain. Yeah, thank you. I'd love to add that MHQP, surveys patients about their experiences with primary care. And what we've been researching recently is uh, racial and ethnic disparities in patient experiences with primary care. And we're finding that Black, 
Hispanic and Asian populations all report worse patient experiences with white populations. So that really calls the question about, okay, what are people's expectations of primary care? And, you know, it's, it's mm. a really complicated question. And I think the fact that we have no shared understanding of the value of primary care is part of the challenge that, that's made this so hard, but we really need to um, better understand specific populations as you and Catherine were, were talking about, like what, what do different people need from primary care? And then how do we redesign primary care? And, and here I have to give a plug for your old book, <laughs> your first book that you had a chapter on the primary care ecosystem and how, you know, people can't, primary care can't be everything to everybody. And we really need, uh, you know, really focus on, on, on different segments. And, and so I, I think that is so true and so needed. And, um, you know, we just have a lot of work to do. Yeah. I, and again, I applaud you for that, your dashboard. I, I'm looking, in fact, I'm staring right now at the equity dashboard that, that you've created and how critically important that is. Barbara, I want to turn to you and ask you the next question. But before, Catherine, you, a moment ago, you talked about the in-basket. For those people who are in primary care who are listening, you understand what Catherine's talking about. I practice medicine, primary care for many years. I understand what Catherine is talking about. For the rest of you, let me take a moment to explain what Catherine's talking about. <laughs> the in-basket is hard to explain. And I, I'm going to be just totally honest and transparent here. If there was one reason why I left primary care, it was the in-basket. It is hard to explain what it's like. It's sort of like an email basket that you have, but you every single day as a practicing physician, you get dozens and dozens and dozens of messages. You get lab tests, you get referrals back, you get consults back, you get reports back. It's just this deluge. So it's not like clicking off a quick email. Some of these require a lot of thought, going back into the chart, checking off things, you know, looking at things, making phone calls. That list, and by the way, again, unpaid for, extra time on top of your full day of seeing patients, all the correspondence you have to do, all these other things you have to do around insurance and all that. On top of it, you've got this thing sitting there hanging over your head every single day, every single night. It doesn't stop on the weekends. It doesn't stop during holidays. And you've got to dig yourself out of this hole and it never, never ends. And it's important. It's important work. It's life-saving work. And I talk to doctors now and it's hard to explain that in basket, but people literally say, I went on vacation and I spent the first two or three days of vacation actually just getting my in basket done. And I feel so good. I could actually now take a, some days off. And Catherine, am, am I overstating it or, or you just... really, you really aren't. And I'm, and I'm biting my tongue because there's a whole nother part of the embasket, which has added a, a whole nother dimension, which is a terrific thing for patients, which is that they can write a direct message to their providers, but that is now a whole nother domain of care where patients, it's none of it is paid for time. So think about a patient who can email, say at two in the morning, they wake up, they're worried, they email five things that they want to talk to you about. And again, similar to email, there's an expectation that you'll respond in a certain amount of time. So it really becomes another visit. And it's, again, it's the right thing. It's a life-saving mm -hmm. work. It's really yep. important but not one person can do this work and the in-basket, you know, or that way of communication has to be shifted. 
Yeah. When I used to study the workflow, it, it was almost like there were two different jobs, completely different jobs that were happening, except one was silent and all the stuff you're just talking about, the in-basket and the, and the messaging, it's almost like there's another workflow, which is another day's work, except yeah. it's happening at the same time as you're doing your day's job. I wish there was some way to inform non-clinicians, administrators, leaders in healthcare that were asking, particularly primary care doctors, I think it's others as well, but particularly this is because they're the ones that were all these messages come back to, to inform them of the impossibility of the task at hand and that we really need to figure out a better workflow. And to your point, I love it. And you're absolutely right. Use some of the technology to actually make the job more doable. In addition to everything else we're talking about, until we fix that and, and do something about that, I'm I'm not sure that primary care is going to get off life support. And in fact, it's it's going to get sicker. Sorry about this rabbit hole. I apologize to the listeners, but it is Catherine. You just you just hit upon a couple of really really important things. I want to turn to Barbara to you. You at MHQP, the CHIA, the Millbank with their dashboard. You've really created something so so important. Getting this going. This dashboard that you're going to be measuring year over year, really putting numbers and data and information to this problem. If you were speaking now, you had an audience with whomever you wanted, whether it was CEOs of hospital systems or CMS or HHS or whatever level, state and federal, what is the message here? What, what do you want them to do right now? Well, I think the message, well, there's a twofold message. One, as I mentioned before, you know, primary care is is the one entity that can provide prevention and better manage chronic diseases. So they keep people out of the emergency room and out of, you know, sort of diseases getting to their worst state where, you know, you require hospitalization and, and these services that, you know, are already backed up. So that, you know, that's part of it. But the second part is we've got to redistribute our funds that it, it is just completely ludicrous that primary care, which most people will agree, you know, is the foundation, the basis of our healthcare system, as Catherine said, you know, the only part of the system that, that's there to, you know, sort of address equity and reduce costs and provide high performing care. It, the fact that we're investing you know, so little of our total healthcare dollars on this incredibly important uh, part of the system that which without it, you know, we'll, we'll just, you know, the whole system will, you know, sort of fracture. And I know it's hard for people to imagine, you know, sort of like a, a, a disaster scenario, you know, the future if, when it hasn't happened, but you don't have to go that far. I mean, what, you know, has been reported in, in papers, you know, the Globe and other, you know, it's about backups and people waiting for days for beds and, you know, all this stuff. It, it's just the writing is so on the wall and it's just a matter of we've got to get the attention of you know policymakers, hospital administrators, um, you know legislators, employers to to understand that you know primary care is this you know been taken uh, for granted, and you can't take it for granted. It's it's not going to be there if we don't take care of it. Yeah, Catherine, same question to you. What what's your message to leaders across the country? Yeah, I mean, I I really echo what Barbara said that we can't that we can't take this precious um, resource for granted, and I and I think that making sure that we all are getting on the same page in terms of 
what we're measuring, again, shaping policy around the outcomes that we're most hoping to see um, and, and finances as well. And then I think part of it is just how can policy makers, how can lawmakers be shoulder to shoulder with us and helping create solutions, um, not just with the people who are doing the frontline works, but talking about, again, how do we engage community members into this? How do you, you know, you, you need to have different people sitting at the table to create the solutions. We cannot, you know, I, I think the, the, the famously infamous quote is you, you can't keep doing the same thing and expect different outcomes. Um, we have to change the way that, that we're providing primary care. Yeah. I have to say this. I, I can't imagine many more things more important right now in healthcare, but also to the health of our nation than fixing this problem of primary care in all the ways that you just, you both described. It really, really deserves much, much more attention, much more time, much more resources, and much more of a collaborative approach that you, you've just outlined, both of you. Barbara, you know this because we talk from time to time for myself, just let me know what it is I can do to support what you're doing and Catherine the same. And And I think for the listeners, my guess is uh, after hearing this, you're feeling similar things. So Barbara, is there there anything that you would recommend to the folks who are listening or Catherine? In terms of things to look at? Yeah, things to to find out more about it and get more involved. Yeah, absolutely. And and Zev, I will send you a a listing of emails of, you know, links to our dashboard, to mm-hmm. the national scorecard, to some other um, really important writings about primary care and you know sort of what the problem is and framing it. I, the folks in California have done some really nice work at the California Healthcare Foundation. They recently came out with a um, a report around primary care and health equity, echoing so many of the things that that Catherine said. But I'll I'll send some resources that inspire me, and I think that others will find them inspiring as well. Yeah, and I would say, you know, very much um, along the same lines is first, you know, dig into the resources. There's so much good literature out there. You don't have to go far, um, especially in the last, you know, three years. There's been pretty remarkable um, reports that have come out and we reference some of them. Um, But then the other thing is I really, you know, as much as um, we need this to change on a federal level, so much of what is happening right now, as we are well aware, is on the state level. So working with state legislators, working with people you know in elected office, bringing this to their attention, we all need to be advocates. It doesn't have to be advocate with a capital A, it can be with a lowercase a, but first you need the information and why it matters to step up. Um, but we certainly, especially those of us who are in the front line who are putting out fires every day, we cannot do it without you. Um, so really, I'm hoping that everybody who listens will share this with many, many people that they love and that people can really get engaged um, in this really important action. Well, I'm going to, first of all, thank you both. I know we've gone over time, but Barbara, Catherine, thank you for taking the time to be with us today and give us this uh, amazing perspective and all the great work that you and your colleagues have done and and even some of the positive steps that are being taken. Barbara, as you know, I do every episode, I I conclude by thanking all of the folks out there, those of you who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients and and those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. As Catherine just echoed, you know, so appreciative for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to 
to individuals, to families, to our communities and our society. My friends, this is Zeb Neuwirth on creating a new healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well.